0: Good morning. This morning's reading is John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman, So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And, congregation, please help me welcome Charles.
1: Good morning, and thank you for that. Uh, Like they said, my name is Charles Jones, even. I got it on the screen, which is a pretty exciting moment for me. Uh, My wife and I live in Peoria, northwest suburb of Phoenix. I'm a pastoral resident at Redemption Peoria, uh, and we just, we love redemption, not because of a brand or because of any sort of um, clique that we feel like we're a part of. We love redemption because uh, the focus is on what the Bible says and how do we live that out in community, Um, right? We have all our catchphrases, all of life is all for Jesus, gospel-centered, outward focused, and I love that that's shared across all the redemption congregations, And I love that uh, as Dave went out of the country, the opportunity arose for somebody else to step in and and fill the pulpit for him, and as a a sister congregation, the opportunity came to us, and uh, I jumped on it for a few reasons. One, uh, I want to preach, and I love preaching, but two, I love Tucson, so though we live in Phoenix, yeah, you don't hear that very often, right? So... uh, My wife does not love Tucson. She doesn't hate it, but I usually, she's not here today, but I usually just tell her we're going to get fajitas at Casa Molina, and she's in the car, so we're good to go. Um, so I'm grateful to be here. I went to U of A for my four years of college. I uh, graduated in 2009, went up to Phoenix because I got a job teaching high school Spanish. Some of my former students are actually in the room right now, which is pretty cool and humbling, so they better have been singing that Spanish uh, bilingual song well. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and yeah, now I'm on staff part-time at Redemption. I, I, do real estate for my full-time job now and uh, married like I said to my beautiful wife Amanda and we have two little foster daughters who are two and one we got them on uh, December 2nd it's been a whirlwind ever since and uh, it's really good so we're grateful just that Jesus loves us that he gives us opportunities and that we're a part of of this family so thank you guys for having me really glad to be down here Um, I've never preached on stairs before (laughs) And I've rolled my ankle probably like four dozen times in my life, so we're just going to see how this goes. Awesome. Well, let's pray as we get started. Father, thank you for this day. Thanks for your grace. Thanks, God, that you uniquely made every single one of us in this room. And God, you brought us here for a reason. The hope is that that would be to know you more, God. I pray, God, that those in this room that know you would know you more as a result of us walking through this passage this morning, worshiping together, being in community, taking communion, remembering your goodness towards us in all of creation and in your life, death, resurrection, your ascension, Jesus, and I pray, Lord God, for those in this room that would not call themselves Christians. First of all, we're grateful that they're here and I I pray that they, God, their hearts would be changed by you, Spirit, that they would see the beauty of the freedom that you give and their lives and eternities would be forever changed. God, please give me the words to speak as I feel extremely inadequate to do this and so Lord, please do your work, Spirit, we ask that you would move, we trust that you do. Let us walk in joy in all things, and let us know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have your Bible, if you haven't already, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that can be passed out. Y si quiere una Biblia en español, tenemos esos también. So if that's more comfortable for you, then grab one of those. People are in the aisles passing those out. And if you're on your phone, you better not be on Instagram. That's all I'm saying about that. All right, so we... As a redemption family, typically uh, preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. If you've been at redemption long enough, you probably know that. You know, we've walked through Mark and Acts, and uh, J- we went through Judges even uh, in Peoria. I don't know if that was across all the redemptions, but um, we go verse by verse normally. And the last month or so, we've been in a series called Love Walked Among Us, and it's a little bit of a, um, not like leaving what we normally do, but it's just a little like uh, side road from what we normally do. So rather than walk verse by verse, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We're instead taking looks at specific instances in Jesus' life in the Gospels. So a little bit different than what we normally do, but we don't feel like we're straying from our philosophy of uh, exalting God in His Word. And I know for me, uh, this is week five of the series, I know for me it's been extremely helpful just to see the person of Jesus and His interactions with those around Him. And to see the compassion He shows, to see the love He shows, and to see Uh, what God the Father looks like because of Jesus' life. Uh, And I know it's, like I said, it's been helpful for me. Hopefully it's been helpful for you too. I know oftentimes in church we, I don't want to say reduce Jesus down, but we kind of glaze over his uh, characteristics and we just remember, yes, he saved me, yes, he's Lord, and we kind of move on with our life, which obviously that's the foundation of our belief, but there's more to it than that. So today we're going to continue that. We've seen Jesus um, raise the widow of Nain, her son, from the dead. We've seen him uh, give sight to the man born blind, the the sinful woman forgiven, and then last week uh, heal the man with the withered hand. And we've noticed uh, themes throughout that we'll touch on Today. Uh, but today, before we dive into the text and what it says, we got to do a little bit of like schoolwork. Uh, and it's not because I'm a teacher, but if you notice in your Bible, you most likely see something around or above or below or in a footnote of the text. I know in the ESV, it's double bracketed from 753 to verse 811. And I know in my Bible, right above that, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So super convenient Sunday for Dave to be out of the country. We're preaching a text that's literally not in the original manuscripts of John. Uh, So we're going to take just a, that's not the point of the sermon, uh, but we are going to take some time to deal with that because I think it's appropriate uh, to do so. So just some like seminary stuff to throw at you, and this is not because I'm smart. It's because I read some people who are really smart. Um, So this passage, and again, you can see this in your Bible most likely. It's either bracketed or it's in a footnote. Uh, Maybe it's off to the side, but this passage is not in any of the um, original manuscripts of John. So any of the hundreds that were written and copied This story that we're super familiar with probably wasn't in any of those passages. Uh, John Piper summarizes the work of a bunch of theologians, and I figured I would just share with you what he said because I felt like it was clean and easy to follow. He makes the following points, the following observations about these verses. Uh, It says, The story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. All the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John and pass directly from John 752 to 8:12, so the verse is right before and right after. It says, "In fact, the text flows very nicely from 752 to 8:12 if you leave out the story and just read the passage as though the story were not there. Which is interesting. It says, "No Eastern Church Father cites the passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. When the story starts to appear in the manuscript copies in the Gospel, of John, it shows up in three different places, which again, you can see this in your Bible. Uh, John 736, John 744, John 2125, and actually in one manuscript of Luke, uh, after 2138. And then in style and vocabulary, the style here, the manuscript um, just doesn't really match with the rest of John. Okay, and I'm not telling you that because I'm a, a seminaried uh, expert. I'm telling you that because a bunch of seminaried experts agree on that. It's across the board. Uh, Orthodox Christians throughout the centuries have agreed that this was not included in the original text. And all of you look horrified right now. Like, this is redemption. What are we doing? J. Ramsey Michael says this. He says, But if we cannot feel that this is a part of John's gospel, we can feel that the story is true to the character of Jesus. He says, Throughout the history of the church, it's been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It rings true, it speaks to our condition, and it can scarcely have been composed in the early church with its sternness about sexual sin. It is thus worth our while to study it, though not as an authentic part of John's writing. So what that scholar is saying is that this was held by the early church for centuries, most likely passed down uh, verbally, but it wasn't included in the original manuscripts. And he mentioned something about uh, the church, early church's sternness about sexual sin. And there's theories out there that say this wasn't included in the early manuscripts of church because it would have maybe, the fear that it would have given early Christians the license to commit adultery because they would go, well, Jesus doesn't condemn me. And they'd misread it like you and I do scripture all the time. So there's all kinds of theories. Uh, What we're going to focus on today is that, like it said there, that this is consistent with who Jesus is. It's consistent with what we see of him throughout the Gospels. It doesn't change or oppose any doctrine. We don't want to base any doctrine on it, but it fits in and supports the doctrine that the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the Bible uh, shows. Does that make sense? Okay, let's dive in. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord? Maybe? Maybe? Maybe not, right? That's the, that's the thing we're kind of going back and forth on. So it's included in our Bible. It wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, but we still feel it's important to teach on because it's consistent with who Jesus is. It's not heretical. It's not something that came uh, out of um, like a ghostwriter, or all kinds of the heretical things we see in the early church. So it says this, starting in verse 2. It says, early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. How many of you guys have heard this passage before or this story before? Yeah, the majority, right? And, and even like if you are, didn't hear it in church, just culturally, you know, he, like, he who casts the first stone, line in the sand. We have like normal cultural phrases that come from this passage. So what we're going to do today is just walk through it. Um, and let me just pause real quick and just say, you guys are super, super blessed with the leadership you have at your church. I want to make sure to, I should have said that at the beginning, but not just Dave, mostly Dave. Dave is like one of the humblest, he's probably the humblest guy I've ever met. And everybody I know that, meet has, that knows him says the same thing. Um, so he's a huge blessing to, to me. I don't even really know him that well. Uh, but I know he's probably, hopefully, a really huge blessing to you guys as well. And the rest of your leadership, they love you guys and just serve you so well. So just make sure you continue to love them back. Um, I just want to make sure I gave them a shout out because they're and they're not paying me to say that. So just this is a good we love Redemption Tucson and we love their leadership and we're grateful like I said just grateful to be here. All right, back to it. So we see this scene. It says in verse 2, early in the morning Jesus came to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So this is something we see often throughout the scriptures. Jesus uh, arises early. He goes to the temple where he teaches. He doesn't always teach at the temple, but in this case he is. And people come because they know he's his teacher. They know he's been doing healings. Word has spread and they want to hear what he has to say. So he's in the middle, he's seated in the temple, he's teaching the people. And in verse 3, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees, the the religious leaders of the day, those who, as you read the Gospels, those who constantly oppose Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And then it says, They placed her in the midst. Um, So Jesus is teaching in the temple, people are listening. And the religious leaders bring a woman who's been caught in adultery and and put her out in front of everybody. Now we're going to read, pause, read, pause, read, pause. So this woman who has been caught in adultery culturally, it's specific in the wording there. She's been caught in adultery, meaning at least culturally, the standard was at least two witnesses have actually seen her in the act of adultery. So she is an adulteress. It's not just an accusation, most likely. She is at least two people have seen her in the act of adultery. And these religious leaders uh, bring her to the temple to Jesus, who they kind of tongue-in-cheek call teacher. It says they placed her in the midst, and in verse 4, they said to him, him being Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So they state what we just covered. And in verse 5, now in the law, they go on to say, Moses commanded us to stone such women So, what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So, Jesus is teaching. The religious leaders bring this woman who's been caught in adultery before him and before others and say, Hey, Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. And as verse 6 says, they they pose essentially a trick question, thinking they probably have it all together, and like this is their moment to finally trap him. They say, in the law of Moses, because we're religious, we're Jews, we follow the law of Moses. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say, teacher? Now let's pause, because we live in America in 2019, and Jesus is misrepresented all the time. Jesus was misrepresented while he was on the earth, and he's been misrepresented ever since. The the guy who disciples me says that Jesus is the most misrepresented person to ever walk the earth, which I would agree with, which really encourages me when I feel really misrepresented. Um, So we need to pause there, but we, we live in a time where Jesus is super misrepresented, but also in a time where the Bible is really misrepresented and taken out of context, right? If you've ever had conversations with your non-believing friends or maybe even friends who are combative towards the gospel, they will almost undoubtedly bring out random passage from the Mosaic Law from the Old Testament and say, well, is this what you believe? And forget everything else that's in the Bible. Um, they're experts, even though they've only read those passages on Wikipedia. Uh, and we do the same stuff, right? Right? And what's interesting is that these religious leaders, they know the law and they're doing the same thing. Because they tell Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. A woman who's been caught in adultery. What do you say? Well, let's look and see what the law says. In Leviticus 20.10, God's law to the Israelites to keep his people, God's chosen people, in purity, in relationship to him. The law says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then it says again in Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And then these religious leaders got the stoning punishment from Deuteronomy 22:24, which says you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. So let's compare. New Testament we're on the scene with Jesus in the temple, these religious leaders bringing the adulterous woman, and they say, she's committed adultery, she should be stoned based on the law, what do you say? Well, Jesus, who is the Word, knows what the Word says, and he looks back to the law, and he sees something that most of you are probably noticing. Every single one of those passages said, both, 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 Right? If the man commits adultery, both the man and the woman with whom he's committing adultery should be, should be stoned, should be put to death. And yet, in this passage, in this instant with, instance with Jesus, the religious leaders just brought the woman. Now that might not matter much to you, but it, what they did was they showed their hand. Because if they really, really, really cared about the law, if they really cared about God's law, if they really cared about purity or justice, then they would follow the law, and they would have brought the man and the woman. And so Jesus sees their heart, which is not hard to do, because it's really obvious if you know the law, and he sees that they brought this woman out of her adultery, covered in shame, using her as a pawn not to punish her or to bring justice or righteousness, but to advance their own self-righteous agenda. They're using this woman who may or may not know better to advance their self-righteous, prideful goals, which you and I do all the time, right? If you've ever talked to anybody about politics, you've done it and I've done it. We reduce... um, heartbreaking, complex, um, human-filled issues into uh, right or left, right or wrong, black and white type of things where it's got to be one or the other. So we do this all the time. We'll get to that later. So verse 6, this is the scene we're in. They asked him this question. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such an adulterous woman. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. They're trying to catch Jesus in a trap so they can bring him down. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, if you've heard this sermon preached before, or you've ever read anything on this, you've probably seen two dozen different things that people speculate that Jesus was writing. He was writing their sins, or he was drawing a line, or he was, it doesn't matter, guys. We don't know, okay? No one knows. No one knows. There's all kinds of theories, most of them really good. We don't know, and it's, in my opinion, not pertinent to the, purpose of the story. But Jesus doesn't answer them directly. He instead kneels down and writes uh, on the ground. And then it says in verse 7, they cont- and as they continue to ask him. So they're saying, what do you say? What do you say? This is what the law says. What do you say, Jesus? You're the teacher. Do we need to kill her or not? Because the hope is that Jesus will either condemn her to death and thus step on the toes of the Romans which is great for the uh, uh, religious leaders. Or he'll go against the law of Moses, which shows that he's a fraud as a religious teacher, which the religious leaders love. So they think it's a win-win. So they ask him this question. He stoops down to, to ride on the ground. They continue to ask him. It says in verse 7, he, stepped, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then guess what he does? Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So they ask him, does this woman need to be murdered? Because she is clearly an adulteress. They're not making that part up. The law says she should be killed. What do you say, great teacher of the law? And Jesus, instead of answering their question how they want it answered, says, let him who is without sin among you, Be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back to writing on the ground whatever he was writing. And if nothing else, he gives his statement time to soak into their hearts. And these are the self righteous, prideful, Jesus opposing religious leaders. And in verse 9, it says, When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So, even these opponents of Christ heed his teaching when he says, if you, he doesn't condemn, he says, if she needs to be stoned, then stone her. If that's the punishment for what she's done, then go for it. But, one rule you have to be sinless. The sinless savior, fully God, fully man, is telling the sinful religious leaders that if you think she needs to be stoned, go for it, but only if you are free from sin yourself. And even they realize they're not. So the older ones leave first, which is important, obviously, because even now it's the case, uh, the older the wiser, but in that culture especially, as soon as the elders were out of the argument, the younger people had no leg to stand on. So they all leave. And we see Jesus standing alone with this woman in the temple. This adulterous woman. And Jesus, it's just them. So we've gone from Jesus with um, those who are hearing his teaching to Jesus with those who are hearing his teaching and the religious leaders and this woman. And now everybody's gone and it's just him and the woman. And we see this really interesting dialogue. In verse 10 it says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, just a common greeting, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Which obviously he knows the answer to. And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. So this woman who is an adulteress, who has been caught in the act of adultery, she's brought before the people in public by these religious leaders who are just trying to, she's already being used, probably by choice, and now she's being used probably against her will by the religious leaders to prove their point and advance their agenda against Jesus. And Jesus, I guess, keeps her from getting stoned. I don't know if they were going to anyways. No one really got stoned uh, to death at that point because the Romans were in charge. They took care of those kinds of things. And it was just so easy to divorce at that point. No one was doing that. Guys would just divorce their wives for pretty much anything at that point. Um, so Jesus tells this woman, where are they? Has, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And then he says these two huge statements. Jesus, again, the, the sinless Savior of the world, God, fully God, fully man, is in the presence of this sinful woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't leave it at that. He says, go, and from now on, sin no more. Or some of your translations might say, leave your life of sin. Gerald R. L. Borchert says, Jesus' verdict, neither do I condemn you, however, was not rendered as a simple acquittal or a non-condemnation. The verdict was, in fact, a strict charge for her to live from this point on very differently. To sin no more. The liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. The liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. Encountering Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, the turning away from sin. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. Paul Miller says Jesus simplifies a complex situation by encouraging self-reflective repentance. He did not simplify the situation as our culture does by saying that adultery is okay because it feels good. He affirms God's rule. You shall not commit adultery when he tells her leave your life of sin. So God is upholding, Jesus is upholding his standard as Lord by condemning the adultery, but he takes the condemnation on himself when he tells her that neither do I condemn you. And again, like it says there in that quote, he's not, like we would say, well, shouldn't have done it, but like as long as it makes you happy, I don't agree, but as long as it makes you happy, it's okay. Jesus does not say that. He doesn't just forgive her sin. He charges her to go and leave her life of sin, to go and sin no more. So what we see in this passage is Jesus constantly being honest with people without being judgmental. And Jesus is the judge, so if anybody can judge, it's him. So he sees the religious leaders' hearts, and he responds to them in only a way that he can, that pierces their hearts and causes some sort of reaction, probably not repentance, but some sort of reaction. And then he sees this sinful woman and does the same. She's caught in adultery. She's being used by these people to advance their agenda. And he tells her, I don't condemn you. With that being said, stop doing what you're doing. Live in freedom. Live in the freedom that I give you. In Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something you guys have probably heard before potentially. He says, Why do you see the speck that's in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Your friends have probably used that one against you too when you're talking about the Bible. What's interesting about this passage is that we more or less can relate with all three main parties, uh, if you're a believer. We can pretty easily, if you're a Christian, you can pretty easily relate to the Pharisees here. Uh, Because at some point, maybe today, definitely in your life, because I'm washed clean, because Jesus has saved me, I've somehow got it together because I forget the gospel and I think it's about me. And therefore, those people who don't know Jesus, ah, like they're condemned. There's no hope. So why tell them about Jesus? Uh, why love them? Because they're just sinners anyways. And I'm better than them because Jesus has saved me. We have a log in our eye. Guys, I did this on the drive down, okay? I was going 82 on the I-10. I don't usually go faster than that because I got a really bad speeding ticket when I was 18. So the lesson was learned at that point in my life. And I was like, people were flying by me going like 90, and I was like, ah, they're speeding way too much. Right? Like, this is what what the Pharisees are doing right here. Like, I was speeding, breaking the law, but the people who were speeding faster than me, I'm like, "Ah, terrible drivers. I'm clearly better than them. I'm a responsible citizen, and they're not. Right? And you guys do it. Well, you live in Tucson, so you all drive under the speed limit. So forgive me. <laughs> forgive me for that analogy. You don't even understand. Um, <laughs> so we do this all the time, and sometimes it's silly little anecdotes like that, like relatively, you know, as we would say, relatively harmless. Oftentimes it's much bigger, uh, hidden, hidden sin in our heart where we judge others. So we relate to the Pharisees a ton. We also relate to the woman caught in adultery because we, right, she's brought before Jesus in her sin and shame, and Jesus says, I don't condemn you, go and live in freedom, essentially. And if you have come to Christ, you have been that woman. Jesus has come to you in your nakedness, in your shame, and he's told you, you're forgiven. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So though you are sinful, Jesus takes your sin on the cross. He takes your shame on the cross and he gives you his righteousness and he calls you to walk in him, to leave your life of sin. To walk in him and to not sin any longer. And obviously we continue to sin and he continues to call us to this freedom that he gives. And for those of us who are in Christ, you have the opportunity, because you're filled with the Holy Spirit, to live as Jesus lives here. If we believe all the verses, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're ambassadors for Christ, right? We represent him. Um, Colossians 1.10, we're called to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. In Colossians 2.9-10, it talks about how all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, and we are filled in Christ so all the fullness of God fills us through Jesus so if we believe that we are saved that our hearts have been t- taken from stone to flesh that the Holy Spirit fills us and works through us then we also believe that we can live as Jesus calls us to live and that's really the premise of this whole series is that we would zoom in on Jesus's life and hopefully be really convicted for how different our lives look. This is not so that we can pull our bootstraps up and be better people. Okay, let me make that really clear. It's so that we can see that even though we're saved, we fall short continually and we desperately need Jesus and we trust him to work in us through his spirit to uh, lead us to repentance so we can look more and more like him till we meet him. Face to face. And in doing so, as we walk in Christ, seeking to live like Christ, we have joy, like profound anchor, super deep foundational joy. Life's going to be really, really, really hard because of it. Jesus was crucified, by the way, and he promised eternal life and he promised suffering. So if you're a Christian, that's your guarantee. Um, But we're going to have joy in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of seeking to love like Jesus has loved. So that's really good news. The probably better news is that the world around you is going to see what the Jesus of the Bible, who the Jesus of the Bible actually is. Right? He's not the cool homeboy Jesus on the meme, and he's not the super white Renaissance Jesus in Rome but he's the Jesus of the Bible. He's the Jesus who loves, who doesn't compromise truth, but loves through that. He's not the Republican Jesus. He's not the social justice Jesus. He's not the American Jesus or the 15 American Jesuses, depending on where you land on the political spectrum. He's the Jesus of the Bible. So we will have joy as we walk in him and people will see who Jesus actually is. If you're like me, You have, Uh, I'll just say, I have friends who love my faith. And they try to live, they don't know the Lord, but they try to live vicariously through my faith. So when somebody's in the hospital or when struggles arise, who are they calling? They're calling me. And it's not because I've done anything, but because I know, they know I love Jesus. And I think they inherently know that I got like the hotline to God because of it. Um, and I tell them, like, hey, my faith is, can be your faith, too. It's not, like, you don't have to, it doesn't really work that way. So they see, they kind of respect my faith. And I think I was going, where I was going is that, especially here in Tucson, like, there's a ton of spiritual people, but everyone hates Jesus. And so, um, or a lot of people do, or th- without knowing it, maybe. And so they, they, like, respect Jesus as a teacher. They might respect your faith because you have a faith, and it's one of many, but they don't know Jesus of the Bible. And so we can remember that we are absolutely lined up with the Pharisees, constantly pointing out the specks in others' eyes, while ignoring the huge log in our eye, and we're absolutely, if you're in Christ, you're like the adulterous woman, because Jesus has saved you, he's taken away the condemnation, he's called you to freedom, and as a result, you can walk as Jesus walks. And let me just pause real quick. If you don't know Jesus, that invitation is always there. Unfortunately, for those of us who are in Christ, we forget that we were saved. We forget who we were before we were saved. As I was driving, um, getting off the freeway, about to turn downtown, I was just thinking, I was like, it's always so funny to come back to Tucson because like every place I went, I was either thinking about a girl or I was like trying to date a girl because I was in college, pre- and post-Jesus. I was just girl crazy. And Jesus saved me not only from all kinds of crazy sins, but he saved me from trying to put my identity in other people's opinions. And we all, if you're in Christ, you have that story and you said, man, before I knew Jesus, I was this way, but then Jesus saved me and now I can walk in freedom. And so I don't have to try to perform. I don't have to try to look a certain way. I don't have to try to act a certain way because I was the adulteress. I was in sin. I was trying to work my way towards God or ignore God. And yet Jesus comes through and he called me and he told me I'm free. He took my condemnation. He took the sin that um, I readily accepted and he gave me his life. And like I said, as a result, we as believers can walk in him. So that invitation's here for you if you don't know Jesus this morning. So take it up. If you have friends here, talk to them. Grab me after the service. Talk to elders here. Um, It's important that you would know him and the freedom that comes with knowing him. So to summarize, we see in this passage, um, which, right, like, was in the early manuscripts, but even as we spent that last uh, bit of time in it, we can see it's consistent with who Jesus is, so we can trust that it's authentic. We see Jesus, who doesn't condemn the woman, who only, he's the only one in the scenario who can condemn her. He doesn't. He calls her to go and sin no more, to leave her life of sin, to walk in freedom. And he also convicts the religious leaders of their sin. So he judges them, or I'm sorry, he's honest with them without uh, being judgmental. And if, again, if anybody can do that, Jesus doesn't have a log in his eye, so he can call out whatever specs he needs to call out. So may we as Christians seek to do the same. May we seek to, in our lives, as, at church, on the drive home, especially when we're in our cars, uh, may we seek to love others, pause in our busy lives to see others for who they are, so that we can love them well, so that they can know Jesus they can have freedom, God can be glorified, and the world can be redeemed. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thanks for this day. God, thanks for speaking to me and through me. That's all you. I'm super inadequate and inept when it comes to this stuff, and um, I'm just a sinner saved by grace and grateful to, wow, be used by you to hopefully do a decent job at proclaiming your goodness. God, I pray for those of us in this room who know you, God. Thank you, Jesus, so much that you saved us, that we know that not only do we have eternal life with you, God, and freedom fully there, but in this life we can live as we were created to live. We can be fully human. We can have freedom um, from all the idols that constantly try to take over our hearts. Jesus, thanks that you give us hope in the midst of sorrow, joy in the midst of longing, freedom in the midst of sin. Thanks that you're refuge and strength. Thanks that you love us, God. I pray, God, again, for those in this room who are here for the first time, who don't know you, Jesus, oh, would they know you. Would they know you and know the goodness and the weight that's lifted from their, their souls because of the hope that's found in you, God. Please do your work, Spirit. We love you. Let's continue to worship you well in these next few minutes as we're here and in all of life. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.